I'm Cameron DeVazier. And I'm Mark Howard. And this is Talking Points. This week we are in quarter one of 2021, talking about Isaiah, and we are in lesson six, a lesson entitled Playing God. Uh, If you just caught our little introduction comments there, there is at least by our count a good 15 chapters of information here that we're going to cover. And there's no way we can squeeze out everything out of them. But in a reflection on this, Mark, what are some talking points that we're going to be looking at this week in our contribution to this lesson? Well, um, as we we introduce the lesson, Mm -hmm. when we get into the introduction, we're actually not following the introduction in the lesson. There wasn't. Some of the lessons I've felt don't really introduce the lesson. They give little stories that might go with the lesson. And interestingly enough, we've had a lot of people comment in general, not to us, mm-hmm. but on Facebook and other places to say, wow, this quarterly, I love this quarterly, and this is, and certain yep. things about it that people are just really I'm happy. not yeah. necessarily as, that's all right. And so the intro story, but so yeah, our for this introduction, week's introductory, I could take it or leave it, but it certainly is not the big rock in well, the Well, we're leaving yeah, it. We're, we're leave doing it. <laughs> our own introduction yeah. on just some of the relevance of the book of Isaiah. We've okay. touched on some of that before. And then our talking points are as follows. Our first talking point is that Isaiah 14 reveals the great controversy. Mm-hmm. And we'll unfold that as we go through. And we've drawn that from Sunday through Wednesday. So the like bulk a big of, of, of the this lesson. week's, after Sabbath's introduction, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all is under this first talking point. And... This is a first. Okay. Our next two talking points are both drawn from the same day. Oh, you're getting crazy. Thursday's <laughs> lesson. Thursday's lesson. Talking point number two is that God's discipline is redemptive. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that, actually. Um, it kind of comes from Thursday's lesson, but it's not anywhere in the quarterly. It's in the reading of Scripture for this. Right. So I mentioned that, you know, some points you might draw out of the Scripture that the, the quarterly uh, right. didn't bring out. And then, so that talk point number two, God's discipline is redemptive. And then finally, point number three, a remnant shall return is mm. our talking point that's drawn from passages that are highlighted also in Thursday's lesson. Okay, so pretty simple structure this time, but we're so going to... So I may, I want to yeah. say that again. Sometimes when I say it's drawn from Thursday's lesson, that doesn't mean that you're going to read about it in the quarterly necessarily. But maybe it some may of the be passages. drawn from the passages that right. are highlighted. For example, Thursday goes through Isaiah 24 to 27. Which is supposed to be the thing because this is... The, adult the Bible, Bible study, study guide. guide. So it's a guide to get us into the Bible, and that's, that's right. our goal today. Well, before we dig into the Word of God, of course, we need to begin with the word of prayer. Yes. So let's start by bowing our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given us to study the Word of God. Thank you that you've given us this Word. And Lord, now we ask that you would also send us the Holy Spirit. Help us to be led, as you promised, into all truth by his sustaining power. We are asking for wisdom, and we trust that you will give it to us in full measure without withholding. So, Lord, give us the mind of Christ to know the Word of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's talk about that overarching introduction. We're not going to okay. just go with a little story, but what's the big picture context? Well, here? the intro- the thing that grabbed me in this week's lesson, and we've talked about this, is 
especially when we started with Isaiah 13. The prophecy in Isaiah 13 is so not only compelling, but there's something that happens in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah blends what we call classical prophecy with apocalyptic prophecy. Mm. Classical prophecy is typically understood as what is local and literal. The prophet saw it and it had to do with his day, his time, the, what's going on then. Yes. Whereas apocalyptic prophecy has to do with what's typically symbolic and universal. They may have, like, for example, the kingdom of Babylon was a literal kingdom. But you come to the New Testament book of, of Revelation and Babylon now is a symbol because it didn't exist then as a kingdom. Uh, uh, it's a symbol for a universal power of evil at the end of time. Yes. Okay. So Isaiah kind of blends those things. And one of the things in Isaiah 13 is it talks about the fall of literal Babylon, mm -hmm. talks about their conquest by the Medes, mm. and it talks about it 750 years before Christ. Now, so when we get into yeah. the book of Daniel, Daniel was written 600 BC, and you've heard the flow of kingdoms in Daniel, and we're like, wow, 600 BC, before it happened, God foretold it. Well, this is even earlier, and the same pattern So is this followed. is like a prelude to D Daniel yes. too. And you know, we've talked about this in our little pre-session meeting here, mm -hmm. that oftentimes we will talk about, you know, every good Bible study, Adventist Bible, prophecy study, or revelation campaign, mm -hmm. will start with Daniel chapter two, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and, and then we'll tie it eventually to other prophecies of Daniel and then yes. the book of Revelation. And it's so clear and so strong that sometimes even our church members might forget that there is, that, or we could give the impression that the only place that those sequence of kingdoms is outlined is Daniel 2 yeah. or Revelation. When the reality is Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jesus in the New Testament, you know, the Apostle Paul, not only Daniel and right. Revelation and John, all of these people are working off the same template. And so when we see here in Isaiah chapter 13, we talk about the rise and the fall of Babylon and the Medes, it seems like, oh, that's kind of a different thing. No, 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 it's it's still right. part of that same overarching so uh, you picture. So ha you have that sequence of kingdoms and then just the phenomenal, like when this was written, Babylon was nothing. Yes. And it talks about Babylon as the glory of kingdoms. So before Babylon became a thing, the Bible's saying it's going to become great, <laughs> and then it's going to be conquered by the Medes, yes. who again are nobody. Yeah. So before any of it ever happened, following that same uh, uh, flow of mm -hmm. rise and fall of kingdoms, but again, way before they ever were a thing, God foretold it. So mm -hmm. that's powerful in and of itself. Absolutely. It's the same reason we look at, you know, the great controversy when Ellen White first wrote about the United States of America, yes. Bible prophecies, this world superpower. Now we read it like, yep, yeah, we're the super. Yeah. But back then it had to be crazy, you know? Yes. And so here Indeed. he's writing and yes, Babylon existed, but it was not the Babylon that the world knew as this great that's conquering right. foe. And it's fascinating. And then of course, the idea again of the blending of the classical and the, the apocalyptic, we know that Babylon is a key player at the end of time, but it's not the literal kingdom of Babylon. Babylon. So you see imagery throughout, like in in uh, Isaiah 13, it talks about the day of the Lord coming. Well, in the context, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment on literal Babylon. Right. But then in that, the language then moves on to say, in that day of the Lord, there's going to be um, signs in the heavens. Verse 10, the stars of heaven not, will not, uh, and their constellations won't give their light. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Those pictures are picked up in the book of Joel, as well as in the books of Matthew, Mark, mm -hmm. Luke, in Jesus referring himself. to the second coming. Well, I'm sick. In, in Isaiah 13, you not only have the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and the yes. signs in the heavens, but also before that, you have in verse 8 about how it will be. people will be afraid. Pains and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman give it, uh, in childbirth. And these are the very same, you know, 
what are the odds that Jesus himself, yes. when he talked about end time events, would liken it to like uh, birth pangs, That's and right. he would talk about the sun, moon, and stars, the signs of the end. And so clearly Isaiah has a local application, but just as clearly there's this more universal, global, end time That's appropriation right. well, for this too. Well, and then chapter 13 is about the fall of Babylon. Yeah. And you come to the three angels' messages, and the Babylon, second angel's Babylon message fallen, says Babylon yeah. has fallen, yes. and it's not the literal kingdom. So there, Isaiah is full of rich lessons. And we talked about this, how a lot yes. of people, they study Revelation, they say, I don't get Revelation, but they've never read some of, I know mm -hmm. some folks are like, well, I don't even read the Old Testament. It's full of yes. the the substance that Revelation is yeah, built basically on. Basically, Revelation so is just tying together all of these right. themes that were established so long ago. Anyway, so, that's all introductory comments, that's right? That's right. So what is our, let's get well, into this. Well, so leading into that, just with that bet, you would expect that because of the blending of the local and literal and the, the spirit, the, uh, symbolic and universal, that Isaiah would reveal what is happening in this great contest between good and evil. Mm -hmm. And that's our first talking point. Isaiah 14 reveals the great controversy. And part of that we draw from a question that comes in the lesson there on Tuesday. Uh, it says, the first, that big how question there says, how could Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, apply to a king of Babylon? Mm -hmm. Now they're building on that because the language of Isaiah 14 says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, etc., etc. And it talks about this exaltation of Lucifer. The Seventh-day Adventists are familiar with this. It's like, oh, this is the this is the fall of Lucifer in heaven before right. his, his initial fall when he, he got lifted up in his heart, etc. And so... Again, our lesson is asking, how could this apply to a king of Babylon? What's ironic is, as I read in other commentaries and what have you, non Adventist, yeah. they said, how could this talk about anybody else? How could, how, why did the Latin Vulgate, why did the church fathers translate this term? Into a proper Lucifer. noun. Yeah, like it's like a Lucifer person, yeah. comes from a Hebrew word, Haleel, which is, it means uh, shining one. And so, it's talking about the king of Babylon in the context, talks about the shining one, and it talks about the sun of the morning. How is this referring to the devil? Mm. And so that was their question. And as you brought out, that word halal, which means shining one, in this passage, in this passage alone, mm. is used in the Hebrew as a proper noun. Yes. So it's speaking of an individual that applies this to, and early church fathers said this applies to Lucifer before his yes. fall in heaven. It gives yet, us the backstory. Yeah, exactly. It's yet another contribution to the big picture overarching story of the entire scripture and not just the local application to the kings of Babylon and the Medes who would come after whatnot. Because here we have the behind the scene. you know, there's a few passages in scripture. You think of Revelation chapter 12, you think of Isaiah chapter 12, Ezekiel chapter 28, that pull back from the, the main players on the earth and show the behind the scenes picture of the fall of right. Lucifer. And this is one of those key passages. And I don't know how far you want me to get into that, but basically that this is the underpinnings of the entire great controversy motif that all of Bible history and prophecy is trying to draw our minds to. Well, and one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons it's important is, you know, the lesson does say on in its introduction on Sabbath afternoon that, uh, among other things this week, we'll look at the origin of pride and self-exaltation. Right. And, you know, we're looking at the Babylonian king and the fall of Babylon and the pride of the kings of Babylon, but where did that come from? Where did it originate? And so this is why the Bible goes back to Lucifer and it talks about him wanting to exalt himself into the place of God. Well, right. even the language there 
uh, doesn't seem to fit. We say, oh, Babylonian kings wanted to be gods. But when you look at the language, it seems to speak to something beyond that. Yeah, far bigger. And then yeah. you go to the companion passage they give in Ezekiel, and very clearly the, the, it speaks of a being who was a covering cherub in right. Eden. Perfect well, that in your ways till you're, from your created. Till, you and know. there it talks about the king of Tyre versus the king of Babylon. So what it's doing is it's giving a behind the scenes as to the spirit that led right. to rebellion. And I have in our notes here that well, and interestingly enough, Babylon was a city that was found that was built on the ruins of the Tower of Babel. Babel. Right. It's the same word in the Hebrew, and Babel was a tower that was built to basically get to heaven without God. Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, the very first mention of the word Babel actually comes in Genesis chapter 10 yeah. as it's tied to the man Nimrod. It says in verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And verse 10 uh, of that same passage, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Right? And right. then chapter 11 talks about the tower of Babel. They want to exalt themselves and go against the, the will of God and the, and the judgments of God. Well, this is the spirit of Satan That's that had exactly said right. his greatness, and he's going to start his own kingdom. Here you see it in the earth, and this literal earthly Babylon, which most notably Nebuchadnezzar was the head of. Remember, yes. he was on this palace uh, in chapter 4 of Daniel. Is, <laughs> Is this, this not, not great, great Babylon, Babylon that I have created for my own glory? Well, it's that same spirit that went from Lucifer, and it was in That's Nimrod, right. and it was Nebuchadnezzar. And no wonder... When we get to the book of Revelation, Babylon is a, is, is a symbolic representation of all that is self-exalting and God-denying. And, you know, uh, That's right. uh, it is, uh, it's a perfect symbol for the powers that will be arrayed in well, the last days. Well, I put days. in our notes, which are available on our michigansspm.org website uh, on the resources page. The Lord, through his prophet, is revealing how pride and self-exaltation so common among fallen humanity, these kings and, and us, originated with Lucifer and is at the heart of sin and rebellion. It's mm -hmm. trying to give us that introduction. And then, of course, the judgment is brought upon Babylon. And just as God brought judgments upon literal Babylon, God pledges that he, this one who weakened the nations, uh, now speaking... You know, in, in these days, it was, wow, the, Babylon was such a mighty empire, and now they're broken down and mm -hmm. never rebuilt. But it throw, it, it, it goes forward. It, it gives us a view forward to Lucifer, who caused the nations to, like, mm -hmm. the devil. And we talk about, oh, his temptations are so strong. And here the Bible says, are you the one who weakened the nations? So it's giving us a glimpse forward to the fall of spiritual mm -hmm. Babylon, which is the, the, the kingdom, the, found, the kingdom of, of mm -hmm. the devil at the end of time in the last day scenario. Mm. So... Yes, yeah, so yes, Isaiah reveals the great controversy by outlining this original fall of Lucifer from heaven and the resulting, you know, parallel here on the earth with Babylon and its leaders and the spirit of rebellion that it That's represents. Right. Okay. And and if time permitted, I mean, you get into the last contest over the law of God. Mercy. Why yes. does a person not want to obey the law? What <laughs> what do you call it? It's rebellion. Mm -hmm. You know, well, where's rebellion started? Pride. So this is at the heart of the whole issue. Right, right. And again, that's one of those. That's one of those completely legitimate streams. You could spend an entire lesson in the yes. great controversy and the Babylon parallels. But let's move on to our second talking point about God's discipline. What, well, what do we and have the here? lesson spends several days on that, and then we come to Thursday. Okay. And in Thursday, the reading of the lesson, the lesson on Thursday is 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 touching on these final chapters of Isaiah. Uh, chapters 24 to 27. And this verse really jumped out at me in reading verse 26 in light of all these judgments because I have gotten feedback from people who are, you know, oh, I don't like reading this because it's always about judgments. And judgments are always bad and negative mm. and what have you. 
uh, in the minds of many people. And so it's interesting what, I, what Isaiah says in chapter 26, verses 9 and 10. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments, speaking to God, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. So there's a contrasting thought here mm. that, uh, and it goes on to say, in the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So the man shown grace, the wicked man shown the grace of God, is, doesn't typically respond. And this is so counterintuitive Mm. I don't even know how to say it. The general theme in the church today, the mindset is, just talk about the love of God and people will be converted. And I don't want to take away from that. The love of God does melt hearts and what have you. But Isaiah is making the point here that too often when grace is shown, it doesn't move people like judgments do. Mm. And this is what scripture is telling us. In fact, Albert Barnes makes a great comment on this. He says, the truth is general and this is in our notes, that though wicked people are favored with success in their enterprises, yet the effect will not be to lead them to the ways of virtue and religion. How often is this illustrated in the conduct of wicked people? How often do they show when rolling in wealth or when surrounded with the comforts of the domestic circle that they feel no need of the friendship of God and that their heart has no response of gratitude to make for all his mercies? Hence the necessity of a according to the language of this passage, that God should take away their property, remove their friends, or destroy their health in order that they may be brought to honor him. Mm. So God brings judgments to save, mm -hmm. and it says to do this is benevolence in God, for whatever is needful to bring the sinner to the love of God and to the ways of virtue is kindness to his soul. We may look at judgments and say, oh, it's so mean and so cruel of God. But if that saves a person for eternity in the paradise mm. of God, was that not the most loving thing he could do? Well, you think of in Revelation chapter 3, when God speaks directly to the Laodicean church, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Yes. Somehow we've gotten this notion that God making things challenging or, or putting up some sort of obstacle or making a difficulty yes. in life is a, is a punishment, is punitive, and there, therefore he is aggrieved and angry or we need to appease, mm -hmm. when the reality is it's actually supposed to be a received as a blessing to point out some That's growth right. that we need to do, um, we need to have in our lives. You know, I'm thinking of, it's in the Gospel of John, let me look it up real quick. I had this just a moment ago. Well, while you're looking that up, he says, those I love, I rebuke and chasten. Yeah, that's you know, exactly so it. Um, well, it's in the gospel. Here, let me make sure I get the right quote here. Um, when Jesus is speaking about the vine and the branches, John chapter 15, yes. you know, very famously, I'm the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. But the very next verse in verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So clearly there's going to be a destruction of those who bear no fruit. But right. then it says, and every branch that bears fruit... He what? Prunes. That it may bear more fruit. And let's just be very clear. Pruning a branch means cutting off the dead spots. Right. Now you put a spiritual application to that. What does it mean for God to cut off the dead spots in my experience? Well, it doesn't sound pleasant. It doesn't sound pleasant at all. And you can think, well, and, but and, I'm not, I'm bearing fruit. I'm, everything's okay. So I should be just receiving right. the blessings of God. Well, maybe he wants even more growth 
And maybe the Lord's disciplinary process, because the reality right. is we judge from a human perspective, but I am still a sinner. That's right. I have still have weak spots in my character. I've got depths of my growth that need to be plumbed. And the Lord sees that. And we shouldn't look at his discipline as um, mean. Well, I'm going to say that most of our viewers would be like, okay, they're probably okay with this part until we superimpose it on local church discipline. Mm. And we don't have time to We get have to into go back and dust of, it off. When was the last the time you ever heard is, of a local church? Many of our churches don't even do disciplinary action because it's always perceived as mean and unloving and cruel. And, and it can appear so at the time you're going to remove somebody from membership from the church, which incidentally is By the, the way, only kind of a, discipline. Yeah, exactly. That's the most extreme form. Right, but There's if you look at the church censure, manual, this church... Censoring. Not censor means they can't speak, but the censure, which is basically public reprimand for the purpose of redemption. That's right. So you say, like, look, what, why don't you step out of office for a while? Let's, don't right. be that Sabbath school teacher. Don't be the mm -hmm. elder for this time period. But review your past. Review what you've done. You know, walk with God a little bit more and, mm -hmm. and bring forth fruit with repentance. But even as you put it, some people are like, oh, that sounds so mean. And it's hard for us to see the merciful end in the judgments of God. And this is why <laughs> when it comes to Scripture, it's not how I feel about it or how I perceive it. It's what God says. And the passage here is clear that the judgments of God will often do more than the grace shown the wicked because of the nature of our hearts. Ellen White mm. puts yeah, it this put, way in yeah. the... Patri well, why don't you go ahead and read yeah, it? Yeah, Patriots and Prophets, page 470, speaks to this very issue. She says, God speaks to his people in blessings bestowed. And when these are not appreciated, he speaks to them in blessings removed. So notice that they're both blessings from God, given or taken away, That's but right. it's still his communication. Why? That they may be led to see their sins and return to him with all their heart. That's right. So he can bless you in a positive way and also bless you in removing something, but it's still for the ultimate end of drawing you closer right. and making more like Jesus. So our talking point is God's discipline is redemptive, and that first point dwells on how the judgments of God are initially to save, but then that leads somebody to ask the question. In fact, the lesson asks the question, does God destroy? Yeah. If God's trying to save, then why would he ever destroy anybody with judgments? Well, you know, famously, we think of 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, this comes to my yes. mind every time we deal with this. And it's verse 9 is what everybody knows. And it's a beautiful passage where he writes, um, where it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if it just stopped right there, it'd say, Well, the Lord's will is that no one will ever perish, and everybody will repent. Which, of course, is what <laughs> yes. he wants. But then verse 10 comes along, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And he goes on to talk about the destruction right. of the wicked. So the Lord is both long-suffering so and merciful. So if he doesn't want him to perish, why does the day of the Lord come? Right. So why would this why God who judgment? wants everybody to repent somehow cut off the time limit and call mm -hmm. times up? Well, there's more to God's plan of redemption than merely just prolonging and prolonging and prolonging and giving yes. chance after chance after chance. Because at some point, people will make a chance that is unalterable. You Twice. look at Lucifer. We talk about that fall from heaven. There came a point, you can read about this in the earlier chapters of uh, the beginning of Patriarchs and Prophets and other parts of her writings, where there was this long time period that the law, she says, the Lord bore long with Lucifer, right? That's right. But at some point, he got to the, got to the, a point in his experience where the Lord knew that even if he were to give him his put back in his place, I think his that's character one of the wasn't most, changed. I think that's one of the most misunderstood things about the nature of sin is that it will put you in a place where you would not ever desire to repent again. Mm. 
And you had highlighted on that when we were talking yes. about this with Revelation, with the trumpets and, yes. the, and the plagues. Well, you look at the seven churches, for instance, and the call is always repent, repent, repent. Mm -hmm. You look at the seven trumpets, and there's the, I mean, it's a really rough looking picture, but the purpose is for the people to repent. But when you get to the seven last plagues, this is after the close of probation. Right. This is after there's an opportunity for repentance. There's no but reversal the Bible says, at that point. Exactly. Would, yeah. But it says, and they did not repent. And it could lead you to the idea, oh, well, they had a chance and they still weren't taking it. No, 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 no. These seven last plagues don't just, they're not a door of opportunity for people to come in one last time. It's a demonstration of the character that even if there were a door, they wouldn't come back. That's right. That it shows to the onlooking universe that how God dealt with them was just and fair. That's and it's right. in that context. Saying they yeah. didn't repent is simply saying that given the opportunity at that point, they never would. Exactly right. And so... Uh, what's, so then again, the final destruction of the wicked, um, I think it's important to understand the final destruction of wicked is mercy, is in mercy to the saved. We always mm. think about, well, that person, and take church discipline again. Well, wh why would we send that person out of church? We ought to think about saving them. What about the people in the church what who are being affected? What about the other people who are influenced um, by that, you know, yeah. There are people, and, and, and God forbid I say it, I guess, but uh, even in, we've had incidents in our own schools, in our own universities, where a professor is going and teaching this, and I've had people say, but he's our brother and we need to, we need to bear along with him. What about all of our children who are mm. led out of the church because of that. So there, as much as when discipline isn't carried out in one instance, it affects more than one person. Mm. And so Ellen White makes a, a fascinating statement in uh, Last Day Events 241. It says, the plea may be made that a loving father would not see his children suffering the punishment of God by fire while he had the power to relieve them. And I've heard the sentiment in the so church. So many like, different versions God of that. doesn't ever destroy. He's not a destroyer. Or he might be passive. He might allow it, but he's not in it. Right. You know what I'm saying? But she goes on. But God would. So the plea may be made. A loving father wouldn't see his children suffering his head. But God would, for the good of his subjects and their safety, punish the transgressor. Because in punishing, he's saving one group in the punishment of the other. God does not work on the plan of man. He can do infinite justice that man has no right to do before his fellow man. Noah would have displeased God to have drowned one of the scoffers and mockers that harassed him, but God drowned the vast world. Lot would have had no right to inflict punishment on his sons-in-law, but God would do it in strict justice. Mm. So God, as she mentioned there, works on a plan bigger than us. It's Isaiah who would also speak about how God's ways are higher than our ways. His yes. thoughts are higher. He sees the end from the beginning, and he knows the Im impact that right. not doing discipline is going to do. So for the good of his entire universe, exactly he is both right. merciful and just. And in the end, everyone will say, just and true are your ways. That's right. Mm. And, and let's be clear. God does never, never delights in the destruction of the wicked. But he will do it for the sake of saving his, you know, right. first of all, the wicked. And when they've gone to a point beyond where they won't be reclaimed, then he'll do it for the sake of those who have chosen to serve him. Well, let's talk about those who have chosen. As we move into our yes. third talking point, that praise the Lord, it's not just all judgment and destruction, <laughs> but in the midst of this intertwined is this other theme that a remnant shall return. That's right. So Isaiah was instructed to name his first son Shear Yashub, which means a remnant will return. Mm. And so it, 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 there was this constant, you know, that was 
Like, the, the child wasn't a sermon. He, well, he was. He was all the time. Yeah. There was a constant message to the people of God that God wanted to save them. Mm. A remnant shall return. And it's interesting because it just is reflective of the whole book of Isaiah is intertwined with these um, promises of deliverance in between all the judgments. So we had the, the passage starting with Isaiah 26. 24, but, but we're looking, let's just look at a few parts of that. Isaiah 26, 1 through 4. Uh, why don't you read that? Sure, it says, in, the, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So God appoints salvation. He's going to open the gates and he's going to bring it, you know, all this promise of redemption. And then you come mm. to verse 19 and it says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So here's the resurrection mm, of the dead. This is not Isaiah's day. This is looking right. forward to this final end of sin. Mm -hmm. Now, in chapter 27, verse 1, it says, In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And, of course, that's, that's an another theme that goes through all these the great prophecies. Red dragon, exactly, the, the dragon, the devil himself. So, it's a talking about the destruction of Satan in the last day. Yet in that context, in verses 4 and 5 of the same passage... Yeah, he says, uh, Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. In other words, the Lord says, If you're going to fight against me, I'm going to break through <laughs> it. Luck. But, he says, Or let him take hold of my strength, that he mm. may make peace with me, and he shall, not he might, he shall. So there's a promise here. You can fight against me, you're not going to win. But if you want to take hold of my strength, even if you don't feel strong enough to make peace with me, then you will make peace with me. Mm. I'll give you my strength and I'll give you that blessing and bring you, you know, etc. Thus, then, in chapter 25, verse 9, in the midst of all of these which judgments. Which is our memory verse for the Right. Week. We had this wonderful passage and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And that's just a sampling of all of these wonderful promises throughout the book of Isaiah in the midst of the judgments that God is looking to save. Right. It's not all uttermost. doom and gloom, but the whole point is to bring out a remnant and save those Everything who God would is be doing saved. is for the salvation of humanity. Beautiful. Now, uh, I appreciate the contributor of these lessons every week at the end putting these summary statements yes. in. And I'm going to close with this today. It says, Isaiah saw that following Assyria, Babylon, and of course we're talking about the literal Babylon in the historical mm -hmm. context here, would conquer Judah. But he also saw that in spite of superhuman rulers of the darkness of this world, working through God's human enemies and presuming to play God, that the Lord would decisively prevail and bring eternal peace to our troubled planet. Yes, so yes, we we're going to study the literal Babylon and Judah and Assyria and these kings, but the goal is to see the broader picture of the great controversy and how the Lord has in his mind the redemption of his people who Absolutely. will look to him and live. Praise the Lord for that. Pastor Howard, can you give us a word of prayer as we Let's close? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the testimony of Scripture. And Lord, we're thankful for your blessings bestowed and 
Lord, for your blessings removed, if that's what it takes to draw us back to yourself. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we pray that we would be in your kingdom and all of those in our circle of influence would be there as well. We pray for our viewers. We want them to be enriched by these lessons in such a way that we would be more effective, they would be more effective in reaching the souls around them, and one day very soon being among that group that says, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for hearing and answering this prayer for we pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen.